Welcome to the Fellowship Regional Church Podcast. Every kid knows um, who has the softer rules between mom and dad. Every kid knows. Like they, like they know. Like you might not think they know, but you knew, right? They know. Some of you, you're pushy as a parent. Some of you, push over, you know? Like you always, this is the way it goes. Mom will say, don't play on that. You're going to get hurt. Dad says, jump off. You'll be fine. Jump off. Come on, you little sissy. Jump off. This is what dads do. Moms don't do that. Dads say things like, yeah, you can ride in the front. We're only going a few miles. Moms say stuff like, no, put on your 48-point harness. Get in the back. Put on your helmet. You know, that's kind of how, I'm not saying it's always the mom or it's always the dad, but typically inside of a family, there are those of you who are fun parents and there's those of you who are functional parents, you know. You'll never guess which one I am. (laughs) I'm better than I used to be, but there's always that thing. And it just kind of depends on the kid in the, which regime he is under at the time. Mom will say, no, you can go ride your bike until noon. You'll check in every 30 minutes. Do it. Dad's like, where have you been? You were gone all day. <laughs> I was gone all day. And it was wonderful, Dad. It's wonderful. Didn't even know you were gone. Perfect. No, it's always kind of, you know, you know which one it is. But it's difficult as a kid because then you've got to kind of figure out. Now, let me say this, and I won't go into it today, maybe another time, but that is a very good way to teach your children the art of manipulation (laughs) by having two different sets of rules. It's a very good way to begin teaching your child how to be a manipulator. If you want to go that route, keep it up, you know? If you don't, maybe get a page, stay on it, you know? Maybe get a page and stay. We'll talk about that another day. In Israel, in the first century, it wasn't much different from that idea. There were two sets of rules. There were two laws in place. And sometimes there was some sway. One would be soft on one. One would be hard on the other. 64 BC, when Rome comes in and takes over Israel, Roman law is now the law. Now, here's what's crazy. The Jews had... The Mosaic law already. They already had it. But when the Romans came in, they were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You need to calm down with all your rules. You need to calm down with some of this stuff. The Hellenization of the country begins to happen. Public baths go in. Brothels go in. Things begin to change a little bit. And the Jews are living in this place to where... It's like the red light district just moved in. They've got to figure out how, to, how do you live inside of here with our own rules and laws, yet there's rules and laws that go against our rules and laws. 
I'm not a prophet, but my guess is this. As a Christian, we will probably see similar things happen in the future, in our country, to where our government will say, this is now the rule, and you know good and well that Jesus is saying, this is the thing I want you to do. I'm not a prophet, but you can kind of look at that and say, it's probably on the way. I don't know if it'll be us, maybe our kids, maybe their kids. There will be a conflict somewhere. Now, when Rome came in, they were generous enough and sensitive enough to say, okay, um, you don't have to go to court on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is obviously very important to the Jews, so you don't have to go to court on the Sabbath. We'll hold court another day. They also came in and they said, and this goes back to something we've talked about in the past, you do not have to have our Roman emperor on your coins. If you remember, there were money changers in the temple. Remember Jesus went bananas on them? There was a reason there were money changers there. Because some people used this currency. The Jews used their currency. They didn't want to have to have the other currency, which also is a very interesting point when they come to Jesus and they say something about, um, is it right for us to have to pay taxes to Caesar? Do you remember this conversation? And Jesus' response is, I don't know, does somebody have a coin? And somebody who's accusing him or trying to set him up reaches in their pocket and pulls out a coin with Caesar's face on it, which is implication of, oh, so you've already sold out. Anyway, let me see your coin. It's super, it's super. There's a lot of neat stuff. So they were sensitive enough to say, you don't have to put our emperor on your coinage. There were some other things in there too. We'll talk about it in a minute. They didn't make him sacrifice to the emperor as a deity. They could continue worshiping as they worshiped. But there were some other things that they pulled out of their hands and said, no, you're not doing that anymore. Dad came home said, no more. It's not going on like this anymore. Mom was like, this is the way things should be. And then Daddy Rome came in and said, no, this will stop now. Let's dive into our story. Um, John chapter 8. Jesus has a pattern. I don't know if you picked up on it. Jesus has a pattern, and this is the way it goes. He accumulates a large crowd. He teaches people. He heals the sick. He forgives sinners. And he condemns the religious leaders. Almost everywhere you go in the scriptures, Jesus is doing one of those things. He shows up. He accumulates a crowd. He teaches them. He heals them. He forgives sins. And he ticks off the religious leaders. That's just like clockwork. Jesus just does this. And I know we can see this as a pattern as we read through. But we're not the only ones who see it. The religious leaders also see it. And you begin to count on it. They begin to look at it like, how do you set Jesus up to trip him up? How do you mess him up? How can we get him out of the way? He's causing a stir how in the world can we get rid of Jesus? I don't know if you know this or not, but Jesus is kind of dangerous. Yeah? No? He's pretty dangerous. And people would like to believe that, oh, no, he's... You see all the pictures of him hanging up in churches and all, you know. I grew up and there was pictures of Jesus. 
you know, with the feathered hair, Jesus, you know? This is Jesus' senior picture of Jesus, you know? His hands are typically like this. Just real soft and gentle Jesus, meek and mild. We like him like that. Like Ricky Bobby, maybe. We kind of like him, little baby. But he's kind of dangerous. If you go plotting against him or trying to get around him, he's kind of got a thing that just, he just kind of shows up and takes over stuff. If you get your priorities out of whack, I don't know if you know this, Jesus will take a hammer to everything you love. Have you seen it? If you haven't, let me just be the first to tell you. If you get your priorities out of whack, he will take a hammer to all your favorite toys. From experience, I know this. Get them out of line, yeah, take a hammer to them. It's kind of dangerous. But these guys don't like them. You remember the story of the man who was lame? He was at the pool of Bethesda, and it was on the Sabbath. And he'd been laying there for 38 years or something like that. And Jesus comes up to him, and you remember this story because of the odd question that Jesus asked. Do you want to get well? And this guy goes into all the excuses on why he's not well and all this. It's just kind of a strange interaction. He's like, I don't have anybody. It's not my fault. The waters are magical, and they stir at a weird time, and all the other paraplegics beat me to it. It's just strange, just a strange interaction. And Jesus doesn't even really interact with it. He just looks at him and he says, get up, be healed, pick up your mat, go. It's almost a miracle in spite of his faith. If you remember, there's a little bit of interaction because this guy goes toting his uh, sleeping bag right through, the, right through Jerusalem and the leaders stop him like, whoa, 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 whoa. It's the Sabbath, chief, do you remember? He said, yeah, well, it's not my fault, because that's what this guy says over, not my fault. So, well, whose fault is it? He said, one guy, well, I don't even know where he went. No, he said, one guy, he's the one that told me to do it. Come to find out, it's Jesus, of course. There's this big altercation, and then right there in that chapter, in chapter 5, John 5, the religious leaders, John writes, then they begin to look for a way to kill him. I don't know what your morning was like, but my guess is this. And I think I can say this with full confidence. Nobody has woke up this morning and tried to kill you. Fair? I didn't say you woke up this morning and somebody wanted to kill you. That's probably completely different. Probably completely different. Even at my house, it might be different. But nobody has probably tried to kill you. And if you remember in John 6, there's some altercation in there. And they're really upset with Jesus, these religious leaders. And then in John 7, there's some more because remember he goes up to the Feast of Tabernacles, but he goes up secretly and his brothers are kind of provoking him. These guys want to kill Jesus. Later on in chapter 7, Jesus asks them, why do you want to kill me? And they go, you're demon possessed. Why do you think people are trying to kill you? You're insane. And they just deny it. But Jesus knows. Jesus knows everything. They want to kill him. Ever since chapter 5, things have kind of taken a weird turn. Jesus just keeps marching into the fire. Keeps marching right into the middle of the crowd. He's going to teach the crowd. It's like 
clockwork. What's Jesus going to do? He's going to accumulate a crowd. He's going to teach them. It's what he's going to do. He's going to heal them. He's going to forgive sins, and he's going to tick off the religious elite. This is what he's going to do. Man, how in the world can we trap a guy who is just so good? Let's trap him because he's good. That would be the best way to do it. John chapter 8. At dawn, he appeared in the temple, verse 2, in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses commanded us, in the law Moses commanded us to stone such woman or women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to cast the, th cast the first stone. Again, he stooped back down and wrote in the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. How do you catch a guy that's so, so nice? You got to catch him in a legal catch-22. It's got to be, we've got to find mom's rules and dad's rules and where they intersect, and it creates just like, like the sights on a rifle. Then we can nail him to where he cannot escape mom or dad. That's the only way you can get him. And this plan is good. This is good. Jesus is teaching in the temple courts. And so he's out there in the temple courts talking, and the crowds have gathered around, and typically the way a Jewish teacher would teach is he would teach from a setting position, and everybody else would just kind of either stand around, some would sit down, and so he would be in this position, and he would be teaching. And so the crowds are there, and he's going, and he's telling his stories, and he's doing all this stuff in the temple courts. People loved him. They loved to hear his stories. You remember from chapter 7, where they said, some people said, he's a good man, and others were like, no, he's a deceiver. But like it or not, listen, there are some people who you just listen to, whether they're good or whether they're bad, they're provocateurs. They're people who just have this dynamic personality that just kind of suck you in like a, like a train wreck. You're like, oh, I'm going to watch it go off the rails. They're insane. You just do. And Jesus kind of had this dynamic personality that brought people to him all the time. He always accumulated a crowd. You could count on that. He would sit down and he would teach them. You could count on that. You would heal them. You could count on that. You would forgive them. You could count on that. And they counted on that. From the back of the crowd, it begins to part, and you see these temple guards, maybe, scribes. They're, they're called lawyers. 
It's their job to study the Torah and know all the ins and outs. This is the go-to guy. How do we get around this law or this rule? How do we do this? Go ask the teacher of the law. He would know. These guys are geniuses. They've been studying it forever. Here they come with this woman in tow. They bring her in and they stand her up in front of everything. And these guys are terrible guys, terrible guys. Stand her up in front. She's crying, hair stringy. She's embarrassed. She's got caught doing something that she shouldn't have been doing. And here these guys come, and boy, they are proud. Man, they're proud. Jesus. Mm. It's even worse than that. Teacher. Teacher. This is this. If you came in here and you said, Pastor Jared, don't do it first, but if you did, Pastor, Reverend Jared, it's a pretty lofty title that we probably, Father, you know? <laughs> Father Jared, <laughs> please don't. <laughs> so, so weird. To me, so weird to me. Teacher, teacher, this term of endearment, it means expert in your field. I mean, you're the expert, Jesus. You're the expert in situations like this, you know, adultery. You're, you're an expert in this situation. You know about it. We caught this woman, caught her, caught her in the very act. The Greek is clear. Caught her red-handed in the act, personally caught her. And we, because we're good, brought her in because you are the expert, and we need to know, what do you do in a situation like this? You know, Moses says, in a situation like this, that she should be stoned. Well, here's the thing. And Jesus doesn't bring this up because he's not petty, but I am. It actually doesn't say that. What it actually says is if a man is caught committing adultery, and then it goes on to say, and if the other woman, the other party, is also caught, they both shall be stoned. But there is that part about where's the man, which I would have said, like, Okay, so where's the guy? Which kind of leads you into this deal of, is this a setup? Did they let him run? Was it not real? Teacher, what do you do? What do you do in a situation like this? Here's the legal catch-22 that he is in. About 40 years prior to this, maybe, maybe, maybe 20, 30 years, somewhere in there, Rome stepped in and they changed the rules and they said to the Jews, listen, I know that capital punishment is a thing that you used to do when you were on your own and we weren't here, but look, you're not killing anybody else. You're not killing anybody. No one's been stoned for years in this scenario unless Rome takes over. You know this is kind of true because when you get to the trial of Jesus, they can't do it on their own. They have to get Rome involved. So they have to take him before Pontius Pilate. If you want to kill somebody in Israel in the first century, the only way you can do it is get the sign-off from your Roman father, the Roman Empire. You can't do it any other way. And so they're hanging him out. They have got this thing. they got the bait set, the trap set. It's all right in front of him. All he has to do is make one false move. His next words are very important. Jesus, what do you say? What do you say? You see him circling him, salivating like, like wild dogs, just like, screw it up, screw it up, screw it up. Just bloodthirsty. Jesus is so cool. 
He's so cool. <laughs> he just starts, takes a knee, starts writing in the dirt. They keep questioning. Jesus, excuse me, teacher, uh, what do you do? Teacher, excuse us. What do you do? Jesus, a woman is caught in adultery. What do you do? And he's sitting there and he's marking in the dirt. Here's the problem. If he stands up and he says, Mosaic law is right, she has to be stoned. They got him. They got him. Because if he says that, that means he's undermining Rome, putting himself as king of the Jews. They'll haul him in on that charge. If you remember, that's actually the charge that he gets before Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate says to him, so are you the king of the Jews? And he says, did you come up with this on your own? All they got to do is get him to slip up one time. You can count on Jesus' mercy. You can count on it. You know he's going to forgive. He's already accumulated the crowd. He's already taught the crowd. He's already healed their sick. And now you know what he's going to do? He's going to forgive sins. And you know he is. There is nothing uglier than counting on somebody's virtuous characteristics to hang them out. That's ugly. I'm going to borrow money from so-and-so because I'll never have to pay him back. It's filthy. And they got him. The other problem with it is this. If he stands up and he goes, no, absolutely not. We shouldn't. We shouldn't kill her. That's not a good decision. Do you know what happens then? He violates Mosaic law. Oh, so you're going to go against Mosaic law. And then we'll roll him out and we'll charge him with being a seditionist and we'll hang him out to dry because now he's trying to undermine everything else. This isn't going to work one way or the other. Jesus' words are important in this moment. And what's he doing? Doodling. <laughs> Just doodling in the dirt. And maybe there's something more to it. Maybe he's, maybe he's writing their names, the other men who are standing around, who he knows have been with this same woman. know what he's doing. Maybe he's collecting his thoughts. You know how like your mother used to do when she would talk on the phone and she would doodle on the phone book? She would make little tornadoes or little paisleys or just little flowers and she'd be sitting on the phone. Do you remember that when the phone was in one place and you couldn't move it? You had to cord. You could go around the house a little bit, but it couldn't go anywhere. My mom would sit there and she'd be on the phone and she'd just be doodling on the phone book. Maybe that's what he's doing. He's gathering his thoughts. He's thinking. He's drawing. I don't know what he's doing. Maybe he's doing the smart thing, and that's you take a situation where somebody's trying to antagonize you literally to your death, and you just take a minute to just pull yourself out of that situation. I could probably learn something from that personally because <laughs> I kind of have that off-on thing, you know. <laughs> Maybe I just need to kind of check out like Jesus. I don't know. I don't know what he's doing drawing in the dirt. But the longer he's there, the more anxious they get. And then it's like it hits him. It's interesting because the word is straightens up. As he straightens up, as he rises up, the other part of that word is elated. Almost like um, 
You know the word epiphany? There's another word called theophany. When God speaks to you and instantly you just go, oh. And the word is elated. It's this idea of looking up like, oh, brilliant. Light bulb, like this. It's that kind of word. It's stand up, but it's also, oh, elevated thought process or thinking. And it says that Jesus stood up, straightened up, illuminated up, and says, I think she should be convicted of her crime and stoned to death under one condition. That you, who have never committed sin, you line up in front and you throw the first stone. And back to doodling in the dirt. ridiculous street-side kangaroo court that Jesus is in right now. It's just, it's absurd. It's absurd that they would even ask him this because they knew the answer. This is just a trap, only a trap. But then Jesus takes the court and he moves it out of this temple area and he moves it straight into their hearts. You see this with politicians. They bring somebody up and they're on trial. And you know somebody there knows the truth, right? Somebody knows it. One of their colleagues knows the truth. But can they testify? No, they can't testify. They can't. Why? Because they're probably guilty of something too. And to step up and say, well, he's guilty of this means somebody else is going to step up and say, yeah, well, well, you're guilty of that. And then somebody else is going to say, and you're guilty of that. And then we just empty all of Washington. We can't. And Jesus moves the court to the conscience, to the inside of the person. Okay, here's the rule. I know a guy who did a very, very horrible thing, and he deserves to die. You would agree with me. So if any of you have never committed any sort of similar act, you can be the one to load the gun and fire the first shot. But no, we're going down the list. Anybody else who's guilty of this, we're coming after you next. Who's first? <laughs> Not me. I might have accidentally screwed something up, which is my custom, you know? can't do it. Jesus moves it to their heart. I agree. What has to be done has to be done. You who are without sin cast the first stone. Then John writes something so interesting. And then they all begin to file off one by one, leaving. And then he writes this little bitty note, the oldest first. (laughs) That's really cool. That's really cool. And the reason that's cool is because of this. When I was younger, I could tell you exactly what's wrong with every single one of you. 
You come in here and you ask me, I'll tell you exactly what's wrong with every single one of you. I could line you out, tell you where you're wrong. I mean, get you. I would be super good at it, super good at it. You know why? Because the world is so much more simple when you're young. There's a lot less gray when you're young. When you get older, you get a little more time on you. You've made some pretty good mistakes. Got your own little um, scrapbook full of regrets that you try to hide under the bed as best you can. And somebody shows up and you're missing like they got a problem and you're just the first one to be like, you know, we better go easy. I'm not going to have anything to do with this situation. (laughs) I'm going to check out right now. And the oldest left, and you can see the young ones there like, but guys, but guys, I'm just going to leave this here. They're like, hey, hey, come on. We got cornered in this deal. Come on, come on. (sighs) We're not done with you, Jesus, you know. (laughs) Some stupid cheesy B-rated line from a movie. Jesus, you know, and off they go. Jesus stills doodling in the dirt. Yet again, he stands up, slash elated, looks at this woman, and he says to her, where are your accusers? You want to know the brilliance of this thing? Mind-blowing. I didn't know this until I'm studying through and I start reading it. The brilliance of it is this. To be a a witness in court in the first century... You could not be a woman, a slave, somebody known with any sort of possibly wicked characteristic in your nature. You couldn't have been a tax collector unless you worked as a tax collector for a fixed rate, not the extortion rate that they would typically use. There's this enormous list of things, of people who could, shepherds, they're off the list, Women off the list. How do you find a decent, if you knew the person who was involved, if you were related to them on either side, couldn't be a witness. To be a witness in a court case in that scenario, like it was just a really very, very few times could that happen where somebody would step up and be like, oh, here's one more that would take you off the list. You didn't, if you wanted to be a witness, that takes you off the list. What? And so a court, a court could just get, a case could get dismissed before it ever got to a jury just because they would just discredit the witness on anything. Did you ever play poker? Yeah, can't trust that guy. Did you ever jaywalk? Saw you do it. Can't trust that guy. And you know what Jesus does? With zero investigation or z- and zero cross-examination, he discredits their witness. Jesus, we caught her in the act. We caught her, saw her with our own eyes commit this crime. And then Jesus says, oh, wow. Well, let's weigh it on the list of things that makes a good witness. If you're without sin, feel free to carry on. The plan was, it was foolproof, except for that part. They all walk off. Brilliant. Man, Jesus is sharp. Man, he's sharp. And he looks at this woman and he says, are there no witnesses? Can you see the smile on her face? No, there's none. 
then I don't condemn you either. Then I don't condemn you either. You can always count on Jesus to be graceful. You can always count on him to be gracious, to be forgiving. If you've ever been in that spot, he forgives you. You know? Like he forgives you. And here's his word to her. Not, you need to straighten up. Not, you know that's bad, right? What he says to her is, I don't condemn you. Now go. Sin no more. You know why he has to say that? Because in chapter 6, he says, the will of my father is that I do not lose one of the ones that he has given me. And Jesus' main goal is to not lose not one of the ones that his father has given him. And how many times do we take our own sin, the things that we screw up, and we will go ahead and disqualify ourselves? And Jesus did not disqualify you. But sometimes we will do it on the inside of ourselves. I'm disqualified because I've been like this lady. I'm disqualified because I've committed this same kind of thing. And we just let the internal dialogue just go and run. All the while, Jesus is going, like, stop it. I forgive you. I forgive you. Go and sin no more. Go live. It seems like there's like five spiritual laws. I picked these up from a, a guy who, I think he died in like 1893. Reverend Benjamin Thomas. He puts together this list, and I want to read it to you. It's really good. I would call this the spiritual laws of holy men and women. These are observable. You can see them. Number one of the spiritual laws of holy men and women. Number one, the most depraved men and women are always the most harsh. Are you harsh? Do you have that quick turn? That light diffuse, that quick cut out, packing my bags, leaving, done with you, ready just to cut people out of your life? I'm done with them. It's a sign of something going on on the inside. The most depraved men and women in the world are harsh. Our Savior was not harsh. The second one is this. The most merciful men and women are always the holiest. Have you met people who, and we have them here, just sweet people who, they're just, they're just sweet people. They're like the men who go, you know what, can't, I love to come to this church. Why? Because... They're so young and screwed up. You're all so young and screwed up, you know? You come in with all your weird baggage and your wagons full of nonsense, you know? And the older people come in and they say, Jared, you know what? I love watching them wheel those wagons in here. All their troubles and their addictions, all just leaking out, making trails all over the floor. I love to see them come in here. Why? Because it's just what Jesus would do, you know? They're so merciful. These people, they're so holy. They look at us and they tolerate us. I had a guy say to me the other day, you work in a young church. This guy's like 75. Do you work in a young church? 
I said, yeah, I do. And he goes, the people are probably young too, aren't they? He's all kind of put out about it. I said, well, not all of them, you know. Some are, some are older. He's like, oh, then there must be the good old people. I said, yeah, that's them. The good kind of old people. You know, the ones that tolerate young ones, you know? Loud music, and obnoxious preachers. That kind? Yes, that's the kind. That's the kind. It's cool. Rule number three, spiritual laws of holy men and women. Outward morality. Outward morality alone cannot stand the test of divine judgment. Outward morality alone is not enough. Can't get you licking stars because you brought your Bible and your friend like you did in VBS and think that that checks the list. You can't just come to church. Think to yourself like, well, I go to church. Yeah, that ought to do the job. You can't volunteer. Make sure everybody sees your, you know, all the giving and all the generosity and all the things that you do. That's not enough for the divine eye because the divine judge steps in and he looks and he says, but what's the heart look like? Just like these men, what's the heart look like? It's murderous. You want to know how ugly it is? And I hesitate to even say this, but do you want to know how ugly it is? How bad and how low do you have to be to climb up the back of an adulterous woman to show the Lord how holy he is or to argue some point with him? How low do you have to be? Put it into our terms. How low do we have to be to find somebody who is absolutely destitute and broke and us find a way to just exploit their weakness so we can feel better about ourselves. How low are we? Outward morality alone cannot stand the test of the divine judge. Rule number four, the greater darkness of opposition that we face, the more our Christ-like character shines. The more opposition we face, the more my Christ-like character should shine. The darker the darkness gets, the brighter the light should be. I don't know if that plays out like that in your world, but the darker it gets around me, sometimes the darker I get on the inside. Oh, you want to? Listen, I got a streak of white trash right down the middle of me. I mean, you want to go to Knuckles? We can go to... Jared, you need to calm yourself down, you know. As the opposition pushes against us, the brighter our character, our Christ-like character, should shine. That's, what it's use That's where it's useful. The church has done its best work in opposition. That's where the church flourishes, in opposition. It should be the same with us. And the last one is this. Sinner and Savior are best alone. Sinner and Savior are best alone. Hebrews 4.14 says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. You need Jesus. Only Jesus. If you come to me and you say, Jared, will you go to God on my behalf? Ask him to forgive my sins. Are you assuming that I have a better footing than maybe you do? 
you are really twisted. That's absolutely not the case. You, you might be better off not even bringing my name up, you know? That might be a good option. You don't need anybody to mediate between you and Jesus Christ. No one. You know what you need? Jesus Christ. We have a high priest. We have somebody who has been here, who stands between God and us now. And he turns to his father and he says, I've been there. I've been there. I know how tough it is. I've been there. And that's the high priest that we have. Sinner and Savior are best alone. We don't need another high priest. Just like the leaders in Jesus' day, they assumed that power and position, uh, they assumed a power and a position they did not possess. We are not the judges of anyone else. We are not even the judges of ourselves. That's the work of Jesus Christ. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. If you do not know Jesus and you are in that place of limbo, place of, you know, I like the stories of him, but I don't know really what I'm supposed to do with him. Or if you've come in here and you've thought to yourself, I've been, I've been holding on to some baggage for a long time. I've been hauling around some stuff that I need to let go of, listen, for good. Stuff that I know I've taken to Jesus and I've said, will you please forgive me? And I know he's forgiven me, but I can't let go of it. And I want to let go of it for good. Um, then come talk to me. You're not alone. I promise you, you're not alone. There's several of us in that same position. If you find yourself there, don't leave all jacked up and hung up and try to charge out into the week with your stuff not settled. Settle your stuff. If you need to talk to someone, catch Luke or I. We'd love to sit with you. Let's pray, and then we'll go home. Heavenly Father, we love you, and we thank you so much for everything you've done for us. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for Jesus and his wisdom, just how cunning and sharp he is, Lord, we thank you for these gospel writers who paint these pictures so clearly. But we ask that we can see you even more clearly. Lord, work in our hearts and work in our church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a wonderful day.